إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله Today then we've arrived at the chapter Bab Man Haqqaqat Tawheeda Dakhal al-Jannata Bighayri Hisab The one who actualizes Tawheed enters paradise without accountability. The one who actualizes Tawheed fully practices and implements the reality of Tawheed will enter paradise without accountability. Anybody want to read? ولم يكن ولم يكن من المشركين وقال والذين هم بربهم لا يشركون عن حسين بن عبد الرحمن قال كنت عند سعيد بن جبير فقال أيكم رأى الكوكب الذي انقض البارحة فقلت أنا ثم قلت أما إني لم أكن في سرى ولكني لدقت قال فما صنعت قلت ارتقيت قال فما حملك على ذلك قلت حديث حدثنا وشعبي قال وما حدثكم قلت حدثنا عن بريدة بن حسيب أنه قال لا ركت إلا من عين أو حمى فقال من فقال قد أحسن من تهلا ما سمع ولكن حدثنا ابن عباس رضي الله عنهما عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم أنه قال أردت علي الأمم فرأيت النبي ومعه رات والنبي ومعه رجل رجلان والنبي وليس ماء أحد إذ رفع لي سواد عظيم فدننت أنهم أمتي فقيل لي هذا موسى وقومه فنظرت فإذا سواد عظيم فقيل لي هذه أمتك ومعهم سبعون ألفا يدخلون جنة بغير حساب ولا أذاب ثم نحظى فدخل منزله فدخل منزله فقاد الناس في أولئك فقال بعدهم فلعلموا الذين صحبوا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم وقال بعدهم فلعلموا الذين ولدوا في الإسلام فلم يشركوا بالله شيئا وذكروا أشياء فخرج عليهم رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم فأخبروا فقال هم الذين لا يسترقون ولا يقتون ولا يتطيرون وعلى ربهم يتوكلون فقام عكاشة ابن محسن فقال دع الله إن يجعلني منهم قال أنت منهم ثم قام رجل آخر فقال فقال دع الله إن يجعلني منهم فسبقك بها فقال سبقك بها عكاشة So in this chapter now then, it is going to explain the one who perfects and practices Tawheed and implements Tawheed 
actualizes Tawheed, then for that individual he will enter paradise without accountability. As Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions here, لَمَّا ذَكَرَ الشَّيْخُ رَحِمَهُ اللَّهُ فِي الْبَابِ الْأَوَّلِ مَعْنَى التَّوْحِيدِ وَحَقِيقَتُهُ مِنَ الْكِتَابِ وَالسُنَّةِ وَلَيْسَ مِنْ كَلَامِ الْبَشَرِ الَّذِينَ يُؤَلِّفُونَ فِي الْعَقَائِدِ In the beginning, as Shaykh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab had explained the meaning of Tawheed and the reality of it from the Qur'an and the Sunnah, not from his personal understanding as many people do. They explain things from their personal interpretations so this is not from his personal interpretation. It was an explanation from the evidences of the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Then in the next chapter, he had mentioned the virtues of this Tawheed. The virtues of this Tawheed. ذَكَرَ فِي الْبَابِ الثَّانِي فَضْلُ هَذَا التَّوْحِيدِ الذي جاء به الكتاب والسنة وما يكفر من الذنوب and the sins that Tawheed expiates and then after that ثم جاء هذا الباب الثالث من حقق هذا التوحيد دخل الجنة بغير حساب ولا عذاب وتحقيق التوحيد so then the one who actualizes Tawheed will enter paradise without accountability or punishment and the actualization of Tawheed it is the purification of Tawheed from any shirk and innovation and sins the purification of Tawheed from any shirk or innovations or sins. So the one who does that purifies his Tawheed, abandoning all forms of shirk and innovation and sins, then that individual enters paradise without accountability and without punishment. So what do we have here from the evidences? Firstly, the statement of Allah in the Qur'an, إِنَّ إِبْرَاهِيمَ كَانَ أُمَّةً قَانِتًا لِلَّهِ حَنِيفًا وَلَمْ يَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ That Ibrahim alayhi salam, he was أُمَّةً قَانِتًا لِلَّهِ حَنِيفًا Various descriptions are given of Ibrahim السلام, in this particular ayah. Ibrahim السلام, as we mentioned before was sent at a time when all of the people were upon shirk. He was sent at a time when the leader An-Namrud the disbeliever who claimed rububiyyah for himself also, their people, his people at that time, they were worshippers of the stars and the sun 
and the moon, they were worshippers of all these types of affairs besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this was in the land of Babel in Iraq. So that story we briefly spoke about last time, the background and the context of Ibrahim alayhi salam, and the fact that he was sent at a time when they were all mushrikun, and they were worshippers of the sun and the moon and the stars, under the leadership of the kafir and namrud But here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions characteristics of Ibrahim, highlighting that he is of the characteristics needed to actualize Tawheed. These characteristics of Ibrahim are examples of the actualization of Tawheed or what is needed for the actualization of Tawheed. So the first characteristic mentioned about him, Kana Ummatan, that he was an Ummah. And the meaning of Ibrahim being an Ummah, in this case, is a role model. Ibrahim salam was a role model in goodness. He was an Imam to be followed. He was a Qudwa, an Imam to be followed, a role model in goodness. Because when you look at the story of Ibrahim salam and how he gave da'wah to his people, beginning with his father, and then the remainder of them, calling to Tawheed, warning against shirk, then certainly what he did, and how he did it, and the da'wah that he gave, he is an ummah, a role model, an imam in Tawheed to be followed. And Allah mentioned in the Qur'an that he made Ibrahim a role model or an imam to be followed. And that is in the Qur'an when Allah said, وَإِذِ بِتَلَى إِبْرَاهِيمَ رَبُّهُ بِكَلِمَاتٍ فَأَتَمَّهُنْ قَالَ إِنِّي جَاعِلُكَ لِلنَّاسِ إِمَامًا When Allah said to him that I am going to make you amongst the people an imam, Someone to be followed, a guide to be followed, meaning an imam in Tawheed. يعني قدوة لأهل الخير إلى أن تقوم الساعة. So Ibrahim السلام, is an imam to be followed, an example to be followed up until the day of judgment. Meaning an imam in Tawheed and his call to Tawheed. فَقَوْلُهُ أُمَّةٌ يَعْنِي إِمَامًا وَقُدْوَةً So the meaning of Ibrahim being an ummah in this ayah is that he was an imam to be followed. He was an imam, exemplary imam amongst his people that they follow him and they follow his methodology upon tawheed and calling to tawheed. So, inna Ibrahima kana ummatan. That is the first description given of Ibrahim alayhi salam. That he was an ummah, meaning a role model, an imam to be followed in goodness.
The second description given of Ibrahim alayhi salam, qanitan lillah, qanitan lillah, walqunut fillughah, ma'nahu athubutu waddawam, that Ibrahim alayhi salam was qanitan lillah, meaning consistent and persistent and continuous upon the obedience and worship of Allah. He was continuous, constant and persistent, continuing always upon the worship and obedience of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is the meaning of al-qunut, qanitan lillah, الثبوت والدوام يعني مداوما وثابتا على طاعة الله لا يتزحزح عنها So the meaning of it here and all of these words can have different meanings in different contexts but the meaning of قانتا لله in this ayah it has the meaning of consistency upon the worship of Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala, he continued and persisted and was constant and consistent upon the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. فَمَعْنَا وَصْفِ إِبْرَاهِيمَ بِأَنَّهُ كَانَ قَانِتَا أَيْ أَنَّهُ كَانَ مُدَاوِمًا عَلَى طَاعَةِ اللَّهِ ثَابِتًا عَلَيْهَا So this means he was regular, consistent, upon the worship of Allah, firmly grounded upon obedience and worship to Allah. بخلاف الذي يشتهد في يوم أو شهر أو سنة ثم بعد ذلك يتراجع انتكاسا بعدما بدأ بالخير لكن لم يكمل. And this is contrary to those who are very short-lived in their efforts. A person maybe strives for a day or a week or a month, and then after that he returns back to his laziness. That is the state of many of the people. They may strive in a short burst, but then afterwards they return back to their state of laziness. And that's why it mentions in the narration that the best of the actions are the ones that are small. They may be small. It doesn't have to be a great deal. But they are consistent. The actions that you are consistent upon. So rather than trying to pray three hours night prayer every night, a person maybe only does an hour or 45 minutes. But at least he does it regularly. As opposed to someone who says, I'm going to be like the Salaf, I'm going to finish all of it in one night, and he manages a few nights, and that's it, finished. Cannot do it anymore, and goes back to the laziness. So here, the meaning of Ibrahim being qanit, is that he was regular and consistent upon the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And qanitan lillah, he was consistent in worship to Allah. 
indicating the sincerity and indicating ikhlas. The third description, and all of these are the kinds of descriptions needed for the actualization of Tawheed. The third characteristic that he was Hanifan. Hanifan al-Hanif min al-Hanaf wa huwa fil-lugha al-mayl wal-muradu bihi huna al-iqbalu ala Allah وأنه معرض عن الناس مقبل على الله سبحانه وتعالى يطلب الخير من الله وحده حنيفا meaning that Ibrahim عليه السلام was upon the worship of Allah and inclined to that and upon that and he was turned away from the other affairs turned away from the people, from shirk, from all other affairs, and only turned towards Allah, only turned towards and upon the path of Tawheed and the worship of Allah. Al-Iqbalu ala Allah, turning towards and being upon the path to Allah, and mu'aridun anin nas, and turning away from the people or the worldly affairs, and worldly matters. So that is the third description given of Ibrahim salam, that he was upon the obedience and heading and towards the path of obedience, turning his back away from the other affairs. And the fourth description of Ibrahim salam, وَلَمْ يَكُ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ that Ibrahim salam, he was not from the mushrikeen. He was not from the mushrikeen. And this is the main point from the actualization of Tawheed. The main point from the four characteristics here is that one there, that he had turned away from the mushrikeen. Because the actualization, the full and proper implementation of Tawheed requires the abandonment of shirk. You cannot be with the mushrikun and upon shirk or any form of it and expect to be actualizing and perfecting your Tawheed. So Ibrahim salam, one of his characteristics here is that he was not from the mushrikeen. He was not from, a, from the ways of the people of shirk, from the actions of shirk. أي أنه تبرأ من المشركين That Ibrahim السلام, declared his innocence from the people of shirk completely and utterly. أي قطع ما بينه وبين المشركين من المودة من أجل الله that he cut off any ties of compassion or love that may have existed between himself and the مشركون for the sake of الله سبحانه وتعالى فإبراهيم عليه السلام لم يكن من المشركين لا بقليل ولا بكثير. So Ibrahim alayhi salam was not from the mushrikeen, neither a little or a lot. 
neither a little nor a lot, meaning absolutely and utterly nothing to do with shirk and the mushrikun and being upon their way. So those are the four characteristics mentioned about Ibrahim salam in this opening evidence. Inna Ibrahim kana ummatan qanitan lillah hanifan walam yakun walam yaku min al-mushrikin that Ibrahim salam was an ummah an imam in tawheed to be followed. He was qanitan lillah consistent and regular, persistent and patient upon the worship of Allah sincerely, Hanifan, that he was upon the path of Tawheed, heading upon that path, turning his back to all other affairs and the people and the likes. وَلَمْ يَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُشْرِكِينَ And he was not from the Mushrikeen, and that is one of the key points here, that Ibrahim salam had abandoned shirk and the people of shirk because that is what is required for the actualization and perfection of tawheed. That you do not have love for the mushrikun. This does not mean that a person may not have natural love for a person who is a disbeliever. That could occur in what? Sense, in the sense of family, perhaps somebody has become a Muslim and his family are not Muslim, there will be what is known as natural love. Somebody is your father, somebody is your mother, even if they are disbelievers and you hate the kufr and shirk that they are upon and you abandon that and you rebuke that, they are still your parents naturally. So there will be that natural emotion between you and them. That is not blameworthy, but anything above that in terms of loving the mushrikun or obeying them over and above, obeying Allah and His Messenger, that is where the prohibition lies. So those four characteristics have been given of Ibrahim salam to indicate that he was, or these characteristics are, from the characteristics of perfection of Tawheed, of actualization of Tawheed, and in particular, the abandonment of Shirk, which is from the actualization and perfection of Tawheed, therefore. Then the author mentions, وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ بِرَبِّهِمْ لَا يُشْرِكُونَ Those who alongside their Lord do not commit shirk. Those who alongside their Lord do not commit shirk. This is an emphasis, it is emphasizing the same evidence regarding Ibrahim because the main point from the evidence regarding Ibrahim was to highlight his abandonment of shirk and that this is from the actualization of Tawheed. The same here. وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ بِرَبِّهِمْ لَا يُشْرِكُونَ Those who alongside their Lord do not commit shirk. Then they are the ones who are 
actualizing and perfecting their tawheed. The ones who do not commit shirk alongside their Lord. And there are other ayat and other points that are mentioned around that ayah. But that is the shahid of the ayah. Those who do not commit shirk alongside their Lord, neither shirkan asghara wala shirkan akbara, neither minor shirk nor major shirk, they do not commit shirk alongside their Lord, la yaqa'u minhum shirk abadan, tawheed. Then they are the ones who have perfected and actualized their Tawheed. Then the author mentions the long hadith, and this is a famous hadith that many people will have heard of before or come across before. The hadith of Hussein ibn Abdir Rahman. Qal, Kuntu inda Sa'id ibn Jubair. This narration now of Hussein ibn Abdir Rahman al-Sulami from the Tabi'een. He was one of the Tabi'een. We have the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the Muslims who were with him, they are known as the generally the companions. Then the next generation that came after them, they are known as the Tabi'un, the Tabi'een, the ones who followed on from the companions, the Tabi'een. So here it mentions that Hussein ibn Abdir Rahman was one of the Tabi'een. The companions were the first generation, the Tabi'een were therefore the second generation, and then you have after them those who came after the Tabi'een, they are the third generation. The Prophet ﷺ taught his companions directly, or many of them. They then taught the Tabi'een, they then taught their students. First generation, second generation, third generation. Here, Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman was from that generation, the second one, below the companions. He says, Kuntu inda Sa'id ibn Jubair. That on one occasion, he was with Sa'id ibn Jubair. And he, Sa'id ibn Jubair, was one of the senior uh, tabi'een. He was one of the senior tabi'een in knowledge, in understanding, in his etiquette, in his affairs, he was one of the senior major tabi'een. And he was from the students of Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhumah. And it is mentioned that he was killed by Al-Hajjaj ibn Yusuf. And that is Sa'id ibn Jubair. So, Hussein ibn Abdir Rahman, one of the Tabi'een, says on one occasion he was with 
Sa'id ibn Jubair, one of the senior tabi'in. Faqal. So he said, Sa'id ibn Jubair said, Ayyukum ra'a al-kawkaba al-lazin qadda al-bariha? He said to them, they had this gathering or sitting, he said to them, who from amongst you saw the shooting star last night? Who from amongst you saw the shooting star last night? And the shooting stars, as we have mentioned before, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the stars for certain reasons that have been mentioned. One of the reasons is for the beautification of the skies. Another one of the reasons is that stars can be used for guidance. North, south, east, west. It can be worked out from the positioning of the stars. And one of the reasons mentioned is that the stars, they are missiles against the shayateen who climb on top of each other's backs to steal information from the heavens. The shooting stars, they are missiles against them. So Saeed ibn Jubair was saying to the people sitting with him, who from amongst you saw the shooting star last night? So Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman, he said, Anna. He said, I saw it. Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman replies to the question of Saeed ibn Jubair and says, I did. I saw the shooting star last night. So then, Thumma He then says, Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman then says, Ama. Ama inni lam akun fi salah, walakinni ludirt. He said, but, however, it's not because I was praying. It's actually because I had been stung by something. He was explaining what now? What was he explaining? But what's the point of him saying, I wasn't praying, but I had been stung by something. What's the point of him mentioning that? What's that got to do with the star and everything? He was explaining the reasoning as to why he was awake in the first place in the middle of the night to have seen the shooting star. Because if he had seen the shooting star, like he said he saw it, it must mean that he was awake during the... Night, he must have been awake during the night for him to have seen that shooting star. So when Saeed ibn Jubair asked who saw the shooting star, he said, I saw it. So now everybody's going to know he must have stayed awake last night. He must have been awake during the night. That's why he saw the shooting star. And everybody, naturally, this is the Salaf we're talking about, would have assumed, or it is possible, that some of them would have assumed that the reason why he was awake at night must be because he was praying. That would be the assumption. That would be a very logical assumption. This is from the time of the Salaf. 
He says, I saw the star, which means he was awake, which means it's very possible people are going to assume he must have been praying then. He must have been awake at night, praying the night prayer. So, Abdurrahman, Hussein ibn Abdurrahman, clarifies to them, preempts them, and clarifies to them from the start, but wait, it's not because I was praying. And that, the scholars, they say, is from the humility of the Salaf, from the humbleness of the Salaf. Did anybody actually say to him, Oh, mashallah, so you were praying last night. Did anybody even say that? No. And yet he is clarifying to them, preempting the possibility of the thought that some of them are going to have. They are going to assume some of them at least, maybe all of them, he must have been praying, then why else are you going to be awake at night? He must have been praying. So preempting that possibility, he says to them, but don't think that just in case anybody was, I wasn't praying. Humility and humbleness of the Salaf. That he didn't want anyone to think or assume something good about him that he hadn't actually done. So the Shaykh says here, a Shaykh al-Fawzan, إِنَّهُ خَشِيَ عَلَى نَفْسِهِ مِنَ الْرِيَعِ He feared upon himself that maybe some riyah, some element of showing off and pride may come into his heart just by the thought of him knowing that some of them are going to be thinking I must have been praying. That brings, even that brings that element of showing off into the heart of a person and pride that he thinks they must all now think I was praying. So he tells them no. To stop any possibility of showing off entering his heart, he tells them don't think anything good of me, I wasn't praying. That wasn't the reason why I was awake. So then he explains to them what the real reason was and why he was awake. And that was, He tells them, I had been stung by something. He says to them, I had been stung by something. To get stung by something poisonous. It means to get stung by something poisonous, like scorpions and those types of animals. So then, when he tells them that, they say to him, فَمَا صنعت? So then what did you do? He's just told them he was bitten by something poisonous, stung by something poisonous, like a scorpion last night. And that's why he was awake, he couldn't sleep. So they say to him, so what did you do then? How did you fix up this poisonous thing? What did you do? How did you treat yourself? They ask him, ma sanat? What did you do? He tells them, ultu, irtaqayt. Irtaqayt. He says, I sought for the ruqya to be done. He sought for the ruqya to be done, to do ruqya upon that sting. Irtaqayt yani talabtu man yarqini bil Quran. So irtaqayt meaning that he 
sought for someone to come and do ruqya upon him, upon that sting, poisonous sting. And then, when he tells them that, that the course of action that he took was, upon this poisonous thing, was to get ruqya done upon it. And we know that you can do ruqya for pains, and you can do it for poisonous things of this nature. It can be done, and there are evidences for that. We know that's possible and allowed. So he tells them, that's what I did. But they ask him, فَمَا حَمَلَكَ عَلَى ذَلِكَ They ask him, but why did you do that? What was the reasoning? What was your basically evidence for doing ruqya? مَا حَمَلَكَ عَلَى ذَلِكَ What is it that uh, caused you to do that? What is it that led you to take that course of action? مَا حَمَلَكَ عَلَى ذَلِكَ and this again is from the way of the Salaf that they seek the evidence. هذا فيه أن السلف يطلبون الدليل على ما يفعلون وما يقولون وفيه طلب الدليل على المذهب والاجتهاد. So this indicates to you how the Salaf they used to seek evidences. He is now telling them, I got stung by a poisonous animal. They say, what did you do? He says, Ruqya. They say, okay, what's your evidence for doing that? What is your evidence for doing Ruqya? So they sought the evidence, and this is from the etiquettes of the Salaf. هذا أدب السلف رحمهم الله أنهم لا يقدمون على شيء إلا بدليل من كتاب الله وسنة رسوله that they did not do anything, perform anything, except that they would have evidence for those actions from the Qur'an and the Sunnah. So they say to him, what did you do that for? What was your evidence for doing that? He says to them, who says to them? Hussein ibn Abdul Rahman. He says to them, Hadithun حَدَّثَنَاهُ الشَّعْبِيُّ He says, because of a hadith that a Sha'bi narrated to us. Because of a hadith that a Sha'bi narrated to us. A Sha'bi, Amir ibn Shurahil, he was one of the great scholars of the Tabi'een. He says, because of a hadith that was reported to us by a Sha'bi, one of the great imams of that time. So then they say to him, قَالْ وَمَا حَدَّثَكُمْ They say to him, So what is the hadith? What did he narrate to you? What did he narrate to you? So then he tells them, قُلْتُ حَدَّثَنَا عَنْ بُرَيْدَ إِبْنِ أَنَّهُ قَالَ He says that a shabi narrated to us from Buraydah ibn al-Husayb, who was from the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So a shabi one of the great imams of the Tabi'een, had narrated this hadith to them, and he had got it from a companion of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. 
from Burayda ibn al-Husayb radiallahu an, he tells them that Burayda reported to us, he told us, لَا رُقْيَةَ إِلَّا مِنْ عَيْنٍ أَوْ That there is no ruqya except from the evil eye and from the poisonous sting. That there is no ruqya except from the evil eye or the poisonous sting. And he had a poisonous sting. So the hadith is applicable or not? Completely applicable. He tells them this hadith. Because of this hadith, I did what I did. The hadith says there is no ruqya except upon the evil eye and the poisonous sting. So now he's given them this evidence. Given them this evidence as to why he did ruqya upon this poisonous sting he ended up with. Because of this hadith reported by a Sha'bi from the companion that the messenger said there is no ruqya except from the evil eye or poisonous sting. So that part so far is clear. He's explained to them the evidence as to why he did the ruqya. As a small side point before we move on, this hadith then it appears to be a proof that ruqya can only be done in how many circumstances? Two. Two. Either from the evil eye eye or from the poisonous sting. So it cannot be done for anything else. Ruqya cannot be done for anything else. Agreed or not agreed? Agreed. It can, if it can be done for other things, then what does this hadith mean? If it does, then what does this hadith mean? We need to work out how this hadith is to be explained. Because the hadith says only evil eye and poisonous things. If it can be done for other things, then how do we understand this hadith? So those are the only uh, times it's permissible. That would mean it's not permissible for any other times. Yeah, and those two things are like the most general, they're like general, they're not tied down to. Mm. So that, for example, like medical, poisonous things could be just like medical, maybe, and then... Uh-huh. So, the scholars they have mentioned, there are, of course, in the Qur'an and the Sunnah, in the evidences, there are other narrations which highlight ruqya can be done for many other things. It's not restricted to these two. But then, how do we understand this hadith? Because there are other narrations telling us ruqya can be done for a variety of other situations. The scholars have mentioned that this narration is in reference to the most effective type of ruqya. That there is no ruqya except in these two things, i.e. the most effective ruqya will be in these two things. Everything else you can do it, but the most effective type of ruqya is in these two affairs. In the affair of an evil eye, and in the affair of a poisonous sting. 
So, la ruqya yani anfa' wa ashfa' illa min ayn aw huma. So there is no other ruqya as beneficial and effective as the ruqya that is done in the circumstance of the evil eye and the circumstance of the poisonous thing. The other circumstances, the ruqya is still effective and it can still be done and it is still legislated and it is still correct. But these two circumstances is where it is most beneficial and most effective when done. So, and that's like they give the examples to understand. We have this kind of phrase in English as well. In case a person says, but how? The hadith says there is no ruqya except in the evil eye and the poisonous thing. No ruqya. But even in English, we have this type of terminology and these types of phrases. It's like anything, a phone. Somebody says to you, listen, there is no phone after the iPhones. There is no phone after the iPhones. Don't bother talking to me. Are there other phones? Of course there are. So what am I talking about if I say, listen, listen, there are no phones after the iPhones. Go away. What does my statement mean? There's nothing as good as the iPhone. But there are, of course, other phones. It's a phrase we use in English as well. There is no phone besides the iPhone. There are, of course, other phones. And the meaning of the statement is not that there are physically and literally no other phones. But it's an expression that is used, an expression, a phrase to indicate the quality or the level of something. So you're just basically saying this is the best. All other phones, non-existent. This is the one. But there are, of course, other phones. So it's the same kind of thing here. There is no ruqya except in the evil eye and the poisonous thing. Meaning, yes, there are other forms of ruqya you can do in other circumstances and they work. But these circumstances, that's where it's the most beneficial and the most uh, uh, effective. See, this is an example now of understanding the texts carefully. And these kinds of things are only understood by going back to the scholars and looking at their explanations and seeking guidance from them. Otherwise, a person comes along now and you read this hadith and it says there is no ruqya except from evil eye or poisonous thing. As far as you're concerned, the default meaning you're going to understand is that ruqya is only allowed in two circumstances. You would only know the reality of this by going to an alim, by going to the explanations, by going to uh, seek that knowledge. And that's the difference between somebody reading books by themselves. I mean, these days people don't even read books, you just Google everything. And Maktaba Shamila, whatever it is, the difference between people just self-reading and self-teaching, not studying with the scholars, not gaining that knowledge from those who are knowledgeable, self-studying. That's why they say the one who self-studies the books is going to have more mistakes than what he's going to get right. They say the one who self-studies, just self-study everything, read and read and read, and learn it all by yourself, no going back to the scholars, no uh, seeking from them guidance, no asking them questions, everything by yourself, 
You think of an issue, you go start looking into books and uh, Googling and Maktaba Shamila and get statements of scholars together, get hadith together, and the reality is you may not actually be understanding those narrations properly. You may end up giving a fatwa now, you're not allowed to do ruqya except in these two things. Because you've self-studied and you've read this hadith, not knowing the explanations of the scholars, not knowing the rest of the sunnah and the evidences, and that's why they say somebody who self-studies without the scholars, nothing to do with the scholars, you're going to end up with more mistakes than you have things right. And that applies to all of these people you see now, all of the celebrities out there claiming to be sheikhs. They've never studied with any of the scholars, all of these YouTube personalities. They've never studied with any of the scholars. They've never sat with any of the scholars. They've never learned Kitab al-Tawheed cover to cover. They've never done these things. They read up a little bit and they come and give lectures and they read up a little bit somewhere, come and deliver something. And the reality is they will not have a detailed knowledge of the affairs. And that's why in the very next part of the hadith, when he tells them, this is the hadith that I used as an evidence, they say to him, قَدْ أَحْسَنَ مَنْ انْتَهَى إِلَى مَا سَمِعَ how good is the person who suffices and sticks to what he has heard? Meaning suffices and sticks to the evidence and doesn't go beyond that. How good is the one who suffices and sticks to the evidence he has and does not go beyond that? And this is the calamity that exists again today. Nobody suffices and sticks to what is there, but rather they want to give a thousand extra lines of their own explanations. You come across a hadith and somebody wants to give you their own explanation. They want to give you their own book. I've written a book on the explanation of this hadith. MashaAllah. They do not stop at what the scholars have mentioned. They do not stop at what the explanations have mentioned. And you see that is where the chaos and the calamity occurs. When people come along and they want to give you their own explanations and all of this. Who are you that you can give an explanation? Who are you that you now think you have the ability to explain all of this yourself without returning and referring to the explanations of the scholars? And if you are returning and referring to the explanations of the scholars, then suffice with them. The explanation they've given you there, is that not enough? That you need to then add another lecture of... 10 hours, a series of lectures with your own extra explanation on top. So they say to him, that's good. You stuck to what you heard, you stuck to that hadith, and you implemented that hadith, that's good. And as Shaykh Al-Fawzani mentions, this is from the etiquette and the character of the Salaf as well. They stuck to the evidences and they didn't go over and above and beyond. فَتَأَدَّبَ سَعِيدٌ مَعَ الْحَدِيثِ And he showed etiquette. Sa'id ibn Jubair showed etiquette to the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He's quoted a hadith to him. So he shows etiquette regarding the hadith. This is good. You stuck to what you had heard. You stuck to the knowledge you had, to the evidence you had. That's good. Because that's what's required. Stick to the evidences and the knowledge that you have. But then, then what do they say to him? 
لكن حدثنا ابن عباس عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم they then say to him but however ابن عباس reported to us from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, now they are basically going to give him another hadith, which gives some extra details in it regarding this whole issue of ruqyah. He's given them an evidence, they've said excellent, perfect. You have an evidence, you've stuck to it. But now they are going to give him extra evidences, another hadith from the sunnah, which clarifies the issue of ruqyah even more, and gives another angle on it. So they say, however, however, there is a hadith that Ibn Abbas narrated to us, the companion, from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said, عُرِضَتْ عَلَيَّ الْأُمَامُ That the nations of the past were shown to me. The nations of the past were shown to me, and this is from the miracles of the Prophet ﷺ, that he was shown the nations of the past, meaning the nation of the prophets of the past. Then he tells them, they were shown to me, the nations of the past were shown to me. And when did that occur? We do not know. It is not mentioned in specific when this occurred, but the Prophet ﷺ says, it occurred, this event occurred where on one occasion, he was shown the nations of the past people. فَرَأَيْتُ So the Prophet says in the hadith, فَرَأَيْتُ النَّبِيَّ وَمَعَهُ الرَّهْضِ The Prophet ﷺ says, when I saw all the nations of the past people, all the prophets, and the people who had followed them. He says, I saw a prophet, and he had with him a rahat. A rahat is a group of people between three and ten. He says, all of the nations of the past were shown to me, the prophets and their people who followed them. And I saw one prophet, he only had a handful of people, several people with him, between three and ten. So that Prophet, name is not mentioned, but that Prophet gave da'wah to his people and died. And in all of that time, only a handful of people had followed him upon that message of Tawheed. Then he says, And I saw another Prophet and he had with him just one or two people. Only one or two people had followed him and accepted that da'wah. And then he says, And a prophet who did not have anyone with him. No one was with him. Meaning all of the people had ended up Rejecting him and nobody had ended up accepting. This is an evidence, therefore, that the majority and numbers that by itself is not 
and evidence for the truth. It could be that sometimes the truth is being followed by the majority, but the fact that it is the majority and the numbers itself per se is not the evidence. Because here, if you were to say, like the people say now, but the world celebrates the Prophet's birthday. Every Muslim country does it, practically. Then how can you say we're wrong when practically every Muslim country in the world celebrates the birthday? How can you small group of people come along and say it's a bid'ah? We say no. It can be every country in the world. It can be 99% of the world, 80%, 70%. The numbers are not a proof. They are not an evidence. Because if that was an evidence, that would mean these prophets were wrong and the majority were right, the ones who had disobeyed them and had not followed them. If numbers was a proof, then that would mean these prophets were wrong. They were the minority. The majority had rejected them. So it cannot possibly be that numbers in and of itself, per se, is an evidence. It could be the case that the truth has the majority in certain times and places, but it's not the evidence by itself. So this is the proof for that, because some of these prophets had barely a handful, barely one or two, not even anyone, indicating they were clearly the minority, but they were obviously and clearly upon the truth, and the majority were upon the falsehood and the shirk. Uh, so, And so there was a prophet and nobody with him. And then, Shaykh Al-Fawzan mentions, فَالْكَثْرَةُ لَيْسَتْ هِيَ الضَّابِطُ فِي إِصَابَةِ الْحَقِّ لَا يُغْتَرُّ بِهَا فَرُبَّمَا تَكُونُ الْكَثْرَةُ عَلَى الْبَاطِلِ وَإِنَّمَا إِذَا اجْتَمَعَ الْكَثْرَةُ مَعَا إِصَابَةِ الْحَقِّ فَهَذَا طَيِّبٌ أَمَّا إِذَا كَانَتْ كَثْرَةٌ بدون حق فلا ولا يزهدنا في الحق قلة أتباعه. So the Sheikh says the majority is not the evidence and you should not be uh, disheartened away from the truth just because you see that there's only a few upon that way and there's only a minority upon that way. So then the Prophet ﷺ tells them all the nations were showed to me and this is what I saw about some of the Prophets. They barely had any followers. Then he says, فَنَظَرْتُ He says, then I looked. فَنَظَرْتُ فَإِذَا سَوَادٌ عَظِيمٌ He says, then I looked and there was a huge amount of people. A nation that was huge. He says, I looked and then I saw a huge nation. A huge amount of people. إِذْ رُفِعَ لِي فَإِذَا سَوَادٌ عَظِيمٌ فَقِيلَ لِي It's missing, yeah. Before that, when it mentions وَلَيْسَ مَعَهُ أَحَدٌ إِذْ رُفِعَ لِي سَوَادٌ عَظِيمٌ Where this huge nation was raised to him, he saw a huge nation raised to him. And he says, فَظَنَنْتُ أَنَّهُمْ أُمَّتِي He says, I thought that this was my ummah. It was a huge amount. 
And he says, I thought that this was my ummah. But then it is said to him, فَقِيلَ لِي هَذَا مُوسَى وَقَوْمُهُ This is Musa السلام, and his people. So the nation of Musa السلام, Banu Israel, they were a huge nation, a huge nation of followers with Musa السلام. Then he says, فَنَظَرْتُ Then I looked, فَإِذَا سَوَادٌ عَظِيمٌ Then there was another huge amount then it was said to me, هَذِهِ أُمَّتُكَ This is your ummah. وَمَعَهُمْ سَبْعُونَ أَلْفًا يَدْخُلُونَ الْجَنَّةَ بِغَيْرِ حِسَابٍ وَلَا عَذَابٍ It was said to me, this one is your nation. And Amongst them, within them, are going to be 70,000, 70,000 individuals amongst them from all of this nation of yours, who will enter paradise with no accountability and no punishment. There will be 70,000 from amongst them. They will enter Paradise without accountability and without any prior punishment. Does this figure mean an absolute exact 70,000? No. No? No, No, but without the hisab. The ones who will enter paradise with no accountability and no prior punishment is the figure of the believers who will get that an exact 70,000. No? No? Why not? What's your evidence? The hadith says 70,000. You're going to say no, then why? Figure of speech, you can't... Uh, why 70,000? That's not a figure that you use for a figure of speech. For figures of speech, you use numbers like 100. I've said this to you 100 times. That's a figure of speech. In Arabic as well, they use it. I've said this to you a hundred times. But nobody says, I've said this to you 70,000 times. So it's not really a normal figure of speech. Any other reason? Is it just like an affirmation for There's no obligation to say that you not really earn any more than that. Any less than that. But then what's the point of the affirmation? Then? Mm-hmm. Why mention 70,000 if it's going to be... You need to say a few compared to the big number. There's no remuneration for every 70,000 there'll be any. I don't know, is there? <laughs> then you're going to have to bring it. Go on then. There is. So there is a hadith. There are other narrations which actually highlight that there will be more than this figure of 70,000 who enter paradise without accountability and without punishment. There are narrations. There are evidences indicating that there will be more than just this 70,000. And the way of understanding the sunnah is to combine and understand all of it together. So there are other narrations highlighting there will be some more. We put that together then and we say, okay, there will be a figure greater than this figure of the exact 70,000. There will be a bit more than that uh, who will enter paradise without accountability and without punishment. So then, then it mentions... ثُمَّ نَهَضَ فَدَخَلَ مَنْزِلَهُ 
after the Prophet ﷺ told them that, that 70,000 were told to me that they will enter paradise from all of this ummah of yours with no accountability, no punishment. He then got up and left. The Prophet ﷺ then got up and left. We're now talking about this hadith of the Prophet. He then got up and left. So the companions who were there, who had heard the Prophet just tell them all of that hadith now, they started discussing the hadith after the Prophet left. They began discussing who could those 70,000 be. The Messenger has just now told them, 70,000 in the Ummah will enter, no punishment, no accountability. He didn't tell them who those 70,000 will be. So when he left, the first thing the companions started discussing was, who will be those 70,000? And this again indicates to you the reality of the companions. For their desire to achieve the goodness, they all wanted to work out straight away, who is going to be that 70,000? What do you need to do to be from the 70,000? The first thing they all wanted to find out and work out was, what do we need to do to get into that 70,000? So straight away when the messenger left, they started discussing, trying to work out, who could that 70,000 be? So some of them, they began to say, فَقَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ فَلَعَلَّهُمُ الَّذِينَ صَحِبُوا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم. Maybe they are the companions. Some of them said, maybe it is the companions of the Prophet wasallam, Because the companions are the best of the people, the best of uh, uh, the rest of the ummah, the companions. So some of them said, maybe it's the companions. And we know about the level and the virtue of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. They are the best of this ummah. The companions are the best of this ummah after the Prophet ﷺ. But some of them, they began to say, فَلَعَلَّهُمْ قَالَ بَعْضُهُمْ فَلَعَلَّهُمُ الَّذِينَ وُلِدُوا فِي الْإِسْلَامِ فَلَمُشْرِكُوا بِاللَّهِ Some of them said, maybe it's those who were born into Islam, because many of them had entered into Islam later, they said maybe the ones who enter without accountability or punishment are the ones who were born into Islam and they did not ever commit shirk. They were born into Islam upon Tawheed and they lived their whole lives until death upon Tawheed, as opposed to the ones who were previously upon Shirk and then entered into Tawheed. So they said maybe that could be a virtue for the ones who were born into Islam and they lived upon Tawheed their whole lives. Maybe they are the ones who will enter into paradise without accountability and without punishment. Uh, so, يعني الذين ولدوا بعد النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم This would therefore mean they are the ones who were born after the revelation began. The ones who were born after the revelation began because then their parents had accepted and they were then born into Islam. So some of them said maybe it's them. Uh, and they mentioned various other possibilities of who it could be, 
who would be the ones who get that virtue of entering paradise without accountability and without punishment. So they were discussing. And then as they were discussing, خَرَجَ عَلَيْهِمْ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ The messenger came out again. The messenger came out again. فَأَخْبَرُوهُ So they told him that they were discussing who that 70,000 could be. They told him that they were now discussing who that 70,000 could be. So then the Prophet ﷺ told them about the characteristics of the 70,000, who they will be. فقال, so he said to them, هُمُ الَّذِينَ لَا يَسْتَرْقُونَ وَلَا يَكْتَوُونَ وَلَا يَتَطَيَّرُونَ وَعَلَى رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ He said they are the ones, firstly, La yastarqoon. And this means they are the ones who do not seek ruqya. They do not seek ruqya. Limada Lianna Talaba Rukya Mina Nasi Sualun Lil Mahluk was Sualu Lil Mahluki Fihidilla. Fahum Yastaganuna Anin Nas we Atamiduna Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. وَهَذَا مِنْ تَمَامِ التَّوْحِيدِ أَنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَا يَسْأَلَ النَّاسِ So they do not go out seeking ruqya. Because when you have to go out asking people, can you do ruqya for me? Can you find someone to do ruqya for me? Can he do ruqya? Can you do ruqya? Do you know anybody? When you're going out there doing all of that, it is a level of degradation for yourself. You're lowering yourself and you're putting yourself in the hands of the people, and that isn't suitable. Rather, you should have your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, rather than seeking out people, can you do it, can he do it, can you get me a contact, who can do ruqya, I need someone, all of that type of thing isn't suitable and appropriate. Doesn't mean it's haram, it's permissible. Ruqya is permissible, and you can do ruqya upon people, it's all permissible. Jibreel alayhi salam did ruqya upon the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So nobody's saying it's haram, but the hadith is simply mentioning going out and seeking ruqya, then that is not from their characteristics. So they are the ones who do not go out seeking ruqya for themselves. And the second characteristic, وَلَا يَكْتَوُونَ that they do not cauterize. Cauterization in the olden days, especially when you have a wound, and they would get the hot metal rod. When you have a big hot fire, you put a metal stick in it, the end of it is glowing red and yellow. And then you put that on the wound, it seals up the wound. It seals up the wound, cauterization. You basically burn that area, it seals it up with that heat. So that cauterization, it is mentioned, they do not go out seeking that type of cure. It's a type of cure. Cauterization, you have an injury, a wound, something open, the cauterization closes it up, it seals it up. But the hadith says they do not go seeking that cauterization by fire. Even though it is technically a type of medication. 
and it's been used as a type of medication. And it is mentioned in the hadith that it's a type of medication, meaning in the sense that an open wound can be closed by the cauterization and those types of affairs. It's in the hadith, الشِّفَاءُ فِي ثَلَاثِ شَرْبَةُ عَسَلْ أَوْ شَرْطَةْ مِحْجَمْ أَوْ كِيَّتْ بِنَارِ That one of the types of medicine or cure is cauterization by the fire. So it's permissible again. Just like ruqya is of course permissible. But the hadith says they don't do it. They don't do the cauterization. They don't seek that type of uh, cure. Because it is considered makruh to be asking of the people. That's not something you would really do to yourself. You need someone to come and do that upon you. And also because of the pain that is involved with cauterization, especially in the olden days, how it was done, the level of pain involved and asking people to do that for you. Then again, that is mentioned as one of the characteristics that they do not seek after because of the pain and in essence it's like a punishment by fire you are going to feel and experience pain in that method so that is not something that they do either and the third thing وَلَا يَتَطَيَّرُونَ التَّطَيُّرْ is the omens that they do not follow and believe in the omens and there are various types of omens that they used to believe in. At-Tatayyur, one of them was that in the morning, early part of the day, they would go out of their house and they'd throw a stone at the tree. Because in the morning the birds are all sitting in the tree. They would throw a stone at the tree. If the birds flew out of the tree, they're all going to fly out when you throw a stone. If they flew out in a particular direction, they would say that is the direction of optimism. So go out today and do your business and do this and you're going to get married, go get married today. We threw the stone and the birds flew out in the good way. They went in the good direction. But if they threw that stone into the tree and the birds flew out from what they consider as the pessimistic route, they go out on the left side or some other side of the tree, they would say that is the bad luck side. We threw the stone and the birds all flew out from the side which indicates bad luck. Don't get married today. Leave it. Postpone it. Don't go do that business deal you were going to do and that market trade. Leave it till tomorrow. Stay in your homes today. So they would have this type of omens that they would believe in. And those chapters are going to come in detail later on as well yet about all of the types of omens and the black cat and the mirror and walk under the ladder Friday the 13th, all of those things, these types of omens people have will come to them later. So here, that's the third thing that they don't do. They do not get involved or believe in those omens. Of course, the mushrikun, that's exactly what they used to do. And that type of practice with the omens in that way, that existed amongst them, that existed amongst them. So we have three characteristics that they don't do. They don't seek ruqya. Remember, there's a difference between doing ruqya and seeking ruqya. Just doing ruqya to yourself is no problem or issue whatsoever. It doesn't even come to this discussion. 
The characteristic mentioned is that they don't seek ruqya from others. فَيَبْقَى قَضِيَّةُ التَّدَاوِي أَنَعْمْ أَمَّا أَنَّ الْإِنسَانِ يَرْقِي نَفْسَهُ أَوْ يَرْقِي غَيْرَهُ فَهَذَا فَعَلَهُ النَّبِي صلى الله عليه وسلم فَرَقَى نَفْسَهُ وَرَقَى غَيْرَهُ وَرَقَاهُ غَيْرُهُ فَلَا كِرَهَةَ فِي ذَلِكَ Doing ruqya to yourself or doing it to someone else, no issue in any of that. The issue here specifically is about the seeking of ruqya from people. يَبْقَى قَضِيَّةَ التَّدَاوِي بالمباح كالحبوب أو بالعشاب أو بإجراء العمليات الجراحية والاستئصال الأورام أو الزوائد فهذا مباح من غير كراهة As for medication because ruqya is a form of in this context we're talking about it as a form of medication curing that poisonous thing so the Sheikh says, as for other forms of medication, like pills, or other herbs, or operations, all of these things that come into the medical uh, field of cures, then all of those are permissible. mubah, They are all permissible. Pills and uh, uh, herbs or operations to remove things, do this, do that. These kinds of affairs are all permissible without any... Kiraha, meaning you can't judge the rest of medicine upon the issue of ruqya. Seeking ruqya is mentioned that you shouldn't do it. But if you're ill and you got severe pain and you need a surgeon to do some little surgery to move some vein or something or muscle, is it not recommended for you to go and seek a surgeon to do that for you? It's allowed. It's allowed. That doesn't come into this. We can't say, no, you can't seek ruqya, which is a form of cure. Then likewise, this thing, you shouldn't go and uh, find any numbers or anybody, any surgeons. Or you shouldn't. That's not the case. Pills, medicines, other things, it's permissible. You can't say, okay, I got some problem and there is a medicine which is available. You can get it over the counter at the pharmacy. He'll give it to you, no problem. But then I'm not going to get it. I'm not going to get it because I shouldn't be seeking cure because the hadith says don't seek the ruqya. The sheikh says no, the rest of medication doesn't come into that like this. The rest of medication has a difference of opinion between the scholars about whether you should use medication, uh, you know, pills, tablets, whatever it might be, or whether you should remain patient. Remain patient and just have your normal diet and whatever, and don't use actual medications. Some scholars say it's better to remain patient and put your trust in Allah and avoid that medication, pills, whatever it might be. Keep your trust in Allah, tawakkul in Allah, and have your diet and whatever, and get on with things like that. And that is the perfection of your tawakkul in Allah. Others have said, that it is completely permissible to take medication because they are a permissible and legitimate means that Allah has given you. So you have some illness, there is a medication out there for that illness, which is proven and it works and people use it and they get better. So now you can take that medication, pills, tablets, whatever they are, you can take it. And that does not negate your Tawakkul in Allah, your dependence in Allah, because you are simply taking the means. And that's in fact the majority opinion. The jumhur of the scholars 
They say you should take the means of uh, uh, established medicines. You should take them and put your trust in Allah. But then there is uh, some scholars, the minority, who say no, don't take them and keep your trust in Allah. And there are evidences for those things uh, mentioned in some of the other parts. And here the Sheikh mentions tadawu wala tadawu bi haram. Do the medication, use the medication, do what you need to do, but don't do it with anything haram. So the hadith says tadawu, do it, do whatever you do in terms of medication and cure, do it, but do not use haram. And in the other hadith, ma anzal Allahu da'an illa wa anzal lahu shifa. That Allah did not reveal any illness except that He revealed with it a cure. Those who know it, know it, and those who do not, do not. So then when He's explained those characteristics to them, and they are highlighting characteristics of tawakkul in Allah instead of going around asking people, can you do ruqya for me? Or going around and seeking cauterization and the pain that causes, or omens are obvious that they don't get involved in those affairs, and this is a type of actualization of their tawheed. Not that ruqya, or even seeking ruqya, is actually haram. Not that it's haram, or uh, cauterization in the modern methods, whatever it, how it's done. Not that it's haram, it's permissible, but that they don't go out seeking these things and lowering themselves before the people. So then when this hadith was mentioned, qama ukkasha, Ibn Muhsin, Akasha Ibn Muhsin, he got up and he said to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Ud'u Allah an yaj'alani minhum. Make dua to Allah that he makes me from them, from the 70,000. Make dua to Allah he makes me from them. And Akasha radiyallahu anhu was from one of the early Muslims. He had participated in the Battle of Badr and he was from the early Muslims and he'd seen a lot of other things. And then he was killed after the Prophet ﷺ in the wars that occurred regarding the apostasy. So he says, make dua to Allah that he makes me from them. The Prophet ﷺ said, Anta minhum. You are from them. This is a testification that Ukasha is in paradise. And the ones that the Prophet testified to by name, we can testify to by name that they are in paradise. So Akasha is from the people of paradise. Then another man got up. And he said, Make dua to Allah that he makes me from them too. But then the Prophet said to him, Akasha got there first. Ukasha preceded you to it. Why did the Prophet ﷺ say to him, Ukasha has preceded you to it? Well, that's obvious. That's like, a, why is water wet? Because it's wet. It's a nice way to tell him that you're not from them. It's a polite way. Ukasha got there first. Meaning, I can't say that for you. It's a nice way of telling him, I can't say that for you. He told him, Ukasha preceded you. Ukasha got there first. A polite way of highlighting to him and indicating to him that I can't say it for you. So this is again from the etiquettes of the Prophet 
So that brings us to the end of the chapter regarding the actualization of Tawheed. This sometimes causes a bit of confusion regarding seeking Ruqiyah and seeking these affairs, but the actualization of Tawheed and the trust in Allah and these affairs become clearer when we start getting to the chapters about trust in Allah, dependence in Allah. There's a chapter on that which will come up. So the more chapters we do, the clearer it will start becoming how you perfect your Tawheed, what you should do, what you shouldn't do, uh, uh, what is from the perfection of Tawheed, what is from the deficiency in Tawheed. Inshallah, it will become clearer and clearer as the chapters go along. So we'll conclude upon that for today then. And inshallah ta'ala, we'll start with the next chapter next week, which is regarding having fear of shirk. Having fear of shirk. And we'll quote again some examples about Ibrahim alayhi salam and fearing shirk. Any questions or anything to add? I can't hear, huh? Self-study, huh? No, how, how are they going to use the Sheikh al-Bani as an evidence? He had no Sheikh? He had no Sheikh at all? He learned everything by himself? That's impossible. The Sheikh al-Bani, he studied. It's mentioned in his uh, uh, seerah. He took from certain people and he learned certain things. You don't learn sciences of hadith by yourself. You don't write books like uh, As-Sahiha wa Da'ifa by reading just books by yourself. It's impossible. He learned those sciences from teachers. He learned it from teachers in the early days growing up. It's mentioned he learned fiqh and he learned Quran and he learned various things. Nobody is going to say a Sheikh al-Albani, his whole life, he just learned it all by himself. It's impossible. He had teachers, he had people he learned from. It may not be that there are famous ones, because nowadays when you talk about some of the scholars who are alive today, you can say they're Sheikh or Sheikh bin Baz and names that everybody knows. They may not be popular names everybody knows. They may not even be Salafi, some of them, who he learned from in the younger days and early days. But of course he learnt the sciences and things from other people, from the other teachers. Remember what your question was, we'll come back. Anybody else? Is watching the same as seeking Watching it? Yeah. No, watching it is nothing. Nothing to do with this. Somebody comes, he's going to do Ruqya, and you, you're watching, no problem. No, the, none of that is in this. Oh, you mean for, the, for, for yourself? Yeah. No, that's not even considered Ruqya like that. You need to get Ruqya done on yourself, so you watch somebody on YouTube doing Ruqya to someone, and you think that's going to uh, work on you now, by watching the YouTube video? That doesn't work like that. Ruqya is, is an act of worship. An act of worship cannot be done by uh, devices. Like for example, imagine when it's the prayer time. We could get these clocks now. You fix the time on the clock, record the adhan in it, and every time when it's time for the prayer, the clock will just do the adhan by itself. Nobody needs to come to the mosque or anything. But that's impermissible because the adhan is an act of worship. It cannot just be done by a digital or some type of technology that has no niyyah, no intention, no nothing. So you couldn't do it like that. So it doesn't work like that. I think what he means is just watching it for fun. No, no, he was to, uh, for fun, no problem. If you just, not for fun, but you're watching <laughs> yeah. it in terms of learning, 
seeing how it's done, that's no problem. But if you think it's going to affect and work like that, that doesn't work. So what about the person that does cauterization on themselves? No, again, on yourselves, none of it. Oh. It doesn't really apply on yourselves. The cauterization has an element of the pain thing in it, which is more, which is a level higher than the ruqya. Ruqya upon yourself, no issue. Cauterization, seeking it is an issue, doing it upon yourself, less of an issue, but you could say there's a bit more still left because of the pain element to it. No, no, it doesn't. If you cauterize, if you seek ruqya, it does not mean you will not go to paradise. This doesn't, it's not shirk. Seeking ruqya is not shirk, not at all. This is about the perfection side of things. So you can seek ruqya, you can say, can you find someone? You can do that. But it's not the perfection of tawheed for someone to be seeking out ruqya and asking others. But read upon yourself, especially when People have a family member and they say he's got magic or this or that. Family members should do it upon their family member themselves. Read the Quran and the scholars say it has more impact when a family member does it. Because you bring somebody from the outside, this other person has no connection to this individual, doesn't know who he is, never met him. It's a different thing. When a family member does it, they do it from their heart as they say. So it has more of an impact, some scholars say, because the impact of ruqya is that you do it sincerely with your trust in Allah that this will work. Anybody else? Um, so if somebody falls into, you know, like cauterization or they do something, does that mean they, they just oscillate with that 20,000 forever? Allah alam, if a person didn't know, but uh, it would appear that maybe they have not met the conditions of those characteristics. But remember, this is just the perfection of the ones without accountability and punishment. Then there are all other believers who will enter paradise. This is just the one level of that perfection. You hear from the people from time to time, and they mention that the second person who asked the Prophet to make dua for him was in fact a munafiq. Possibly. Maybe there's uh, narrations about that. I don't remember. Maybe. In some of the explanations, check see if it says. I don't know. I don't remember. Anybody else? No, that's another type, yeah. If, uh, if you've got Ayn upon uh, you and you suspect very much so that it is a particular person, then it's mentioned in the Sunnah that person does the wudu and you can take that water and then use that and that is a means of removing the Ayn. That's all okay. That's uh, something else which is mentioned as well as one of the means. But the Ruqya is there. You can start with the Ruqya as one of the most effective things. Last question. No, treatments which have haram in them. Any treatment that has haram in it, haram ingredients. They say you can get better if you drink a bottle of alcohol. Imagine. So that's impermissible, haram treatment. They say you can get better if uh, uh, you eat a, a plate of pork. This pork, it makes you good. Impermissible. So anything which has impermissible things in it, that can't be a means of your cure. So using haram as cure can't be cure. But anything else, all other medicines and whatever, it's permissible. All right, we'll have to leave it there. We're late today. Inshallah, we'll continue next week. Wa sallallahu ala